0: Well, if you got your Bible, you can uh, pull that out, and uh, if you access on your phone, scroll to Ephesians 4. And uh, if you're not familiar with uh, looking up passages, most of today's scripture will be on the screen uh, behind me, so you can see it there. You ever ever go to a museum and you uh, like stare at a piece of art, and you're just like, "What the heck is that?" (laughs) <laughs> like, like I mean, just some some of these pieces. I remember I, I I can I can spend about an hour in a museum and then I'm done. Like I enjoy them. Like I gotta take it in doses though. Uh, it's torture for me to spend just hours like in the natural history museum. I love it. I love pieces of it. But sometimes you just go, especially these art galleries, these modern art galleries. And uh, I I remember I went to one in Atlanta one time, and it was this huge panel like a billboard, and it was uh, white, off white, and gray. Three squares, painted. You it was like this, everybody's just standing there. Like, mm, I see it. I see it, and I'm like, well, what do you see? Because all I see is like something I could have done in about 10 minutes, I feel like, in my backyard. You know, it's like we look at these pieces, and, and the more you look at some of these the masterpieces, there is a depth to them, and the deeper you look at them, the more you see. And over the last three weeks, and over the first three chapters of Ephesians, That's what Paul has done. Paul has painted this masterpiece of what true salvation from God is. He talks to us in chapter 1 about this beginning point that we all start in the same spot in God's eyes. Nobody is farther ahead. Nobody is more deserving of God's love than anyone else. And then, you know, two weeks ago we talked about this process of salvation, of how God moves us from being lost and in need to completely rescued and at home with him and then last week he paints this picture of how this then exudes out of our life and how we begin to share this with others by speaking and by serving more so than trying to convince or or convert or coerce people into a religion and so he takes these three chapters and prints a paints a masterpiece picture of what it's like to follow god what it's like to experience the salvation of Christ through God. Now, for some of us, it's tempting. And for many people, many people who are followers of Christ who do this, they stop at the end of chapter 3 and they do what some of us do in a museum and they just stop and stare. And they look deeply into this and they talk about it. They, they debate it. They, they talk about the intricacies of it. And they, they just stare at this beautiful masterpiece of salvation. We were, uh, when we were in uh, Florence a few weeks ago for our anniversary trip, uh, we went to the museum where the Statue of David is. And uh, we, it, it's quite impressive. I, I mentioned it earlier in a different sermon, but we, we spent about 20 minutes at the Statue of David, like walking around it and getting different angles and stuff like that and just being overwhelmed. Uh, the guy that was with us said that some people literally will come and spend eight hours staring at this one statue. And I'm like, all right, you know, I, I guess if you got nothing better to do, you can you can do that with her. She was talking about all the different intricacies and how everybody sees different things, and and it's like they never move past that. And we are so, sometimes we are tempted to do the same thing with these first three chapters of Ephesians. Many of us who claim to be followers of Christ, we sit and talk endlessly about chapter one through three, and what does it mean? What does it mean? What, is, what part does God play? In this salvation process, what part does man play in it? Where does faith come in? Where does it come from? Is this message for everyone? who is in who is this relationship between what is the relationship between grace and faith and works? How do all these things get together? There have been literally hundreds, if not thousands, of books written on chapter one through three of Ephesians and what salvation means. There have been countless debates and conversations about These issues, we've even had church splits, denominations formed, and even different wars started on the different view of salvation, these different perspectives that we have. We even give names to these kind of groups and that have different views. We call ourselves, you know, some of us call ourselves reform, Calvinist, Arminian, progressive, fundamental, liberal, conservative, moderate, postmodern, evangelical. We create these labels of division. And this amazing masterpiece that Paul painted that was actually in its heart, at its very core, was uh, defined and and was uh, described to pull us together, we've actually used it to pull us apart. What Paul meant to be a unifying message of the grace and peace of God displayed for all mankind has been taken by mankind and turned into a a tool of division and divisiveness. It is as if we cannot just be content to embrace the salvation of God through Christ. We think we have to understand every aspect of it. We have to define it. We have to determine exactly how it works in our life. We have to distinguish who is in and who is out. And we make the idea of salvation more important than the actual act of salvation itself. The sacrificial act of Jesus to provide salvation was not done to create a debate. It wasn't designed to be a topic of books and lectures. It had one purpose. To reconcile man back to God. To provide a way for each of us to experience forgiveness through repentance and restoration. That's his job. That's what Ephesians 1-3 through 3 is about. It's not, a, it's not a discussion starter to get debate going about how God does this. It's actually a picture of that we can look at and then be changed by. It leads to true pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope for those who embrace this amazing truth. And this is what Paul begins to teach us now in chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, as much as Paul painted a beautiful picture in the first three chapters, now in 4, 5, and 6, he challenges us to change our, let our lives live as changed people by what we've seen by what we have experienced. It says that these doctrines that we learn should actually move us. One of my favorite books I've ever read, especially in the the Christian uh, sector, is is a book called Doctrines That Dance. It's by a guy named Robert Smith. And it's literally the whole book. He takes these doctrines and he says, you know what? This doctrine should actually cause you to do something. It should actually cause you to move. If you believe in justice and you want to talk about the justice of God, don't just talk about it. Actually put it into practice in your life. Go be. Go right injustices. Go right wrongs. He makes doctrine come alive, and that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians. He's literally challenging us to begin to dance this doctrine of God, salvation, to allow it to begin to move us, to feel it come into us, and to feel it we can't help but respond to it. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Today we're going to learn how to dance with this doctrine of salvation. And will we, not, we will not fall into the trap today of just debating about God's salvation. Instead, we'll begin to tap our feet, sway to the music, dance with the truth that God has changed our lives, and that He has made my broken parts whole, that He has rescued me from spiritual darkness and given me new sight. He has taken me off the path of destruction, and He has set my feet upon the path of righteousness. He has loved me from my first day until today, and at my best and at my worst. He has showered His grace on me when I needed it the most, and He has given me a life of hope and the ability to walk daily in peace. He has saved me. It's a dance. I get to do every day with the creator of this universe. It's not just a truth I get to study. It's a life I get to live. And that's what we're going to do today. You ever have one of those songs, you just can't help but tap your foot to? You just can't help but move to? I, I'm going to be very uh, authentic and, and uh, open with you today. Like, I don't listen to this song much, but when it comes on the radio, that uh, Megan Trainer All About the Bass... I like, I don't know why I have no idea why, but like my foot just starts going tapping. I'm like I don't even like this song, like and uh, but it's just like it gets you out. Know, like yeah, it's one of those songs you just can't help to move to. You just can't have to dance a little bit too. And this doctrine of salvation is one of those doctrines you just can't help but move into. As you experience, as it comes into your life, it causes you to get going. The joy of our salvation is not found in winning a debate, but it is allowing the truths to move through our lives and to move our lives. And that's what we're going to look at. Ephesians 4, verse 1 starts us out by laying this groundwork. And it says this. It says, I, talking about Paul, He says, I, therefore. And I always like the word therefore because it makes you ask the question, what is this therefore? And he's basically, therefore is a transition word. He saying, I'm about to, I just taught you a lot of stuff and I'm going to tell you why I did it. And here's why it says. He says, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk. And I put in parentheses dance, because that's what we're talking about this morning. In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's saying, look, you've taken in chapters one, two, you've taken in the first part of this letter. Now it's time to let it go. Now it's time to start living this out. Too many of us who claim to be followers of Christ only focus on what we know, getting more knowledge, getting more information about God. When I fully figure God out, then I will follow him. Can I tell you something? You will never fully figure God out. His ways are higher than our ways. The minute you completely figure out God, he would cease to be God because he would be known. He would be He is unknowable completely to us. He is so vast and so great. If all I am consumed with is the knowledge of God and intellectual interaction with God and never allowing it to flow through my life, my life's not going to be changed. The pursuit of God is not in the knowledge of God. It's in the action of God in your life. And that's what he's saying. Walk. I urge you to walk. Move. Get going in your faith. And he lays out a great plan for us to do this here. So let's look at verse two and three as he starts to lay this out. He says this, do this with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The first thing that you and I should do here as we learn to move this is that we should dance in harmony with one another. We should learn to dance in harmony with one another. This is not a dance contest. All right, I actually won a dance contest in sixth grade. I did. It was in a gym, school gym. We were having a dance contest. I can. We were playing. Uh, it was some. Uh, I just forgot the song. Anyway, it was some night early '80s song that tells you how old I am. But uh, we were, and it was one of those things. We were all dancing like just, to, and they would come around. And if you were out, they would tap you on the shoulder, and you would have to go sit down. I'm not sure. That's like the, the peak of my dancing career right there, sixth grade. And I'm not sure if I actually won or just I never allowed them to catch me to tap my shoulder. But either way, like I, that feeling was like, I'm the last one out here. I won. This is not what he is saying here. This is not a competition between you and I. That like, me show you up so that you get your shoulder tapped on and you're out of the race. As these truths start to move us, it isn't into a race but instead it's into this harmonious dance with others who are on the same journey. The goal isn't to show others how good I am, but instead how good God has been to us. It is this collective effort that shows that there has been some deep and true change in who we are. It isn't that you have just learned to live better. It's that you have learned to live better with others because God has changed who you are on the inside. And it reflects in these some five key ideas that he lays out here about how we live in harmony and dance in harmony with one another. And the first one he lists here is humility. And what does humility mean? It actually means here cooperation instead of competition. You don't have to always take the lead. You don't, to, you don't have to push others aside so that you stand in the spotlight. Your goal isn't to be the best on the team, but to have the team do its best i celebrate with others, and they celebrate with me. Humility literally means we have an us mentality instead of a you and me mentality. The second thing he lays out here is that you you dance in uh, humility, but also dance in gentleness. This word means to handle with care, like something that's fragile. It means that we treat each other with respect and a true desire to protect and elevate one another. We don't push forward, and we don't hold each other back. Instead, we move together smoothly and seamlessly. I I love watching people who really know how to dance, dance. Like it just looks so effortless. And so, like they just fit together. It's like they're literally floating on the floor. And yes, it's taken hours and hours of practice to do that and working together. But a couple that dances together... They have to be together. One can't get ahead of the other or it falls apart. One can't lag behind the other or it falls apart. And that's what we say with gentleness. You, You constantly care for those that you're with. He says then also patience. This means to endure, to keep moving forward, to not grow weary in working with one another. You know, it is very easy to grow weary in working with other people, isn't it? You ever have that moment where you just go, why don't I just do it myself? I can, you know, I've tried, I've tried, you know, they just don't listen to me or whatever. I mean, if you're a parent, you've had this multiple times in your life as a child. You're like, well, my parents don't listen to me either. I mean, we all have these moments where it's just, if you would let me alone, I could get it done more myself. And that's not patience, though. That's, again, doing it alone, and that's not what God called us to do. He says that we should dance in harmony and have patience with one another, which means that we should accommodate one another, learn to accommodate one another. The fourth thing he says here is that we should bear with one another in love. And this this term here literally means to, to hold up or to help carry a load. We don't rush ahead and leave others behind. We carry burdens together. We celebrate together. And the best way in this dance analogy to talk about it is this, we don't let suffering and trials break into the dance and steal our partner suffering and trials are going to come they're going to try to come and break you apart they're going to try to break in and say let me run this dance for a while and bearing together in love says no this is not going to happen and can i tell you that when this becomes the hardest it's when we love the deepest like you think about in a marriage or in a relationship that you've been in, a family relationship a Dating relationship or a deep friendship you've been in for years, when you love somebody the deepest, and a deep trial, a hard trial comes, and it is tempting to let that trial come in and take the lead in the relationship. To lead on, even in a church, it's easier to let a, a trial or a difficulty to begin to take the lead in moving us forward and to saying, you know what, we're not going to let you take the lead. Instead, we're going to dance through this together. That's what bearing in love means. The fifth thing is, is the way that we dance in harmony together is through a bond of peace. And this word literally means inseparable. A bond of peace. Peace makes us inseparable. This doesn't mean that we have to do the same thing, act the same way as everyone else, but we should be moving in complement to one another instead of competition to one another. Even in our uniqueness, the peace of God, God binds us together. It is literally The peace is the music that is moving us. The key thought with this is here. We must dance in harmony with one another, for it is the reflection of the united work that God has done in our lives. It is the reflection of the united work that God has done in our lives as we dance in harmony with one another. That's the first way we begin to walk, to move, to dance in a manner worthy of the gospel. But look at verse 4 and 6. He lays out another way that we do this here. He says, Then, now know this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What he says now is this. Not only will we dance in harmony with others, but we should dance in purity with God. Purity with God. You ever had one of those relationships or you had a conversation with someone that just seems like they're not all there, like they're looking past you? That guy at the party that, like, he's talking to you, but he's constantly looking over your shoulder to, like, see who else, who might be a better conversation for him. And, like, they come, oh, you know, sorry, I'm going to go get me something to drink. And, like, he's off to the next, you know. And he thinks everybody wants to talk to him, but what? Nobody really likes this guy. Nobody wants to talk to this guy. Have you ever been in a relationship like that where it feels like, you know, if if another person, if a better friend or a better, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend come along, then this person's out. Like it's just, you know, you'd be walking down the street with them, and you can just see their eyes like, well, well maybe I'll go that. You know, you just, man, there's no security in that, is there? And, and we, it's so easy for us to not just do this with one another. It's easy for us to do this with God as well. Instead of focusing and then fully engaging with him, We look over his shoulder. We gaze past him. And we see the other religion or another practice or something else, and we think that might be better than what we currently have. I see other people doing something, and maybe I should go do that as well. And instead of deepening our relationship with him, we end up with a multitude of deluded thoughts, perspectives, and beliefs that none of it makes any real impact in our life. This is why Paul reminds us that when we move, when we dance with God, dance in purity, focus all on him, be all there, take it all in. Can I tell you something? If God is not enough for you, I don't think it's a lacking in God's provision for you. It's a lacking in our focus and our faith in him. It's not that God isn't enough. It's that we've not placed enough of our faith into him. It's how we shift and where we put our focus. Allow his truth to move you instead of moving from idea to idea. And this reflected in this verse. If you, in that verse, it was one this, one this, one this. He's reminding us, and this is what he says. It's these five key ideas of purity. He says, remember, one, you are first one body and one spirit. We talked about this a few weeks ago on Body and Soul Sunday, right? You can't separate your two natures. You are physical and spiritual. You can't dance with God spiritually and dance with something or someone else physically. If you're going to pursue God in your innermost being, your soul, it will influence and impact your most visible part, your body, and how you act and how you think. We can't separate this. We can't say, I, you know, I, I follow God in my mind. I think about God often, but it has no impact on my body and what I do. Dancing with God in purity is realizing that what we think and what we take in will impact us on the outside as well. He says then, you dance in purity is that we have one hope, one hope. There is only one outcome, one destination, one goal at the end of this dance with God. It isn't power, it isn't influence, wealth, health, comfort, ease, or station in life. It isn't the ability to uh, extract revenge or retaliation on someone. It isn't more knowledge or personal accomplishment. It is one hope that belongs to each of us, and that hope is to live a blessed life. Blessed is when you and I not acquire things. Here's what a blessed life means. It means that you and I have the ability to have peace, even in a peaceless situation. You and I can have hope, in a hopeless situation, we can experience joy in trials, wisdom in doubt, compassion in need, and forgiveness in betrayal. A blessed life isn't defined by the current state of my circumstances, but instead by the peace I experience through my circumstances. That's what our hope is. Our hope is to be able to face whatever is coming our way, whenever it comes our way, dancing through it with our focus firmly on God. And as we do, we know he'll protect us, he'll guide us, he'll lead us, and he brings peace and joy and hope, even when it's missing all around us. Then he says, the third way you have this purity is to understand there is one Lord, one Lord. This, This word means one master. There's only one thing to which you give up control of your life to. This deals with the concept of self-control, which is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. And that fruit of the Spirit, self-control, is not God saying, you need to learn how to control your actions better. It's actually best translated and understood as saying, you are determined who you are giving control of your life to. Who will you submit your life to? Will you submit your life to the desires and the passions of your flesh? Or will you submit them to God, the one who created you made you and formed you this means we as we submit to god we listen to him we learn from him we're in awe of him and his love and his grace and protection god doesn't lord over us but he is our lord because we love him and he loves us and then it says there's one faith and one baptism which means this this is how we respond to his lead Following God, dancing in purity with God, isn't about knowing more about him. It isn't about knowing more about doctrine and more distinctives. It's about following him. If you go back to the New Testament and look at the primary command that Jesus gave to people, it was simply this, follow me. Follow me. He didn't give a lot of detailed instruction. He just said, follow me. And today, what we're talking about today, he'd be like, come dance through life with me. Let's do this together. And faith and baptism illustrate the idea that following God will lead to change in both how I think, my faith, and also how I act in baptism. Like it's an external expression. You can't have one without the other. They work together. And the final thing he says here in this purity of of our dance with him is there is only one God and one Lord over all. This in a theological circle is called the theology of exclusivity. Is that there is one god and one way to god. And I many times I get in conversations and people don't like the concept of Christianity because they say it's it's too narrow, it's too, you know, it's why is there only one way to god? Why is your pathway to god right and everybody else's pathway to god wrong? And I simply it's a very simple answer to me. We have there are literally thousands of world religions. Thousands of ways people are trying to make pathways back to God, and I'll I'll say this: every one of these pathways, even ones that Christians have created of trying to say this is what I must do to earn God's love, all fall short. There is only one pathway, and it is not a pathway that man built. It is a pathway that God built to man, and that's the difference. That's why it's not exclusive. It actually opens up access to God as many ways as I try to tell God, this is what I must do to make you love me, God has said, no, I have already loved you. I have already provided a way. The pathway to God is not exclusive. It's simple, and it's open to all. What makes it seem so exclusive is that we have created so many other ways that we say this is our way to God instead of embracing God's way to us. I want to close with these last couple thoughts, found in uh, verse 11 and 12. As he now, we danced with one another and we danced with God, he says now, and now he gave to you the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The last way that he tells us to dance here with this truth is to dance in community with the church. To dance in community. As we dance in harmony with one another and purity with God, our lives take shape. We start to see what God originally designed us to be as the stain of sin and rebellion are removed from our lives. He doesn't change us into something that we don't want to be. Instead, he restores you to what you were designed to be. And what you were designed to be was his counterpart, his reflection of his grace and his truth and his peace here on earth. We're called His bride, His people, His church. The church isn't a gathering of people, but it instead is an expression of God to this world. We don't go to church on Sunday. We are the church. We live as representatives of God to this world. We reflect His grace and His peace and His truth. And they're, each of us are given a role to play in this. And when you think about these listings that are there, these words that Paul used, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, you're like, man, those are some big words. Those are big jobs. That must be for somebody else. That is not for me. Here's the truth I want you to see this morning. Each of us can fit into all of these categories. But God has gifted each of us to lead in at least one of these categories. We, we can see ourselves in all these. There's times I am each of these. But if you are a follower of Christ in here, God has equipped you to lead out in at least one of these. Let me explain them to you right quick and what they are. The first one says apostles. Like, look, I'm not an apostle. Like, I don't even know, you know, what does that mean? Apostle, the word apostle literally means ambassador or spokesperson. This is somebody today that would have the gift of motivation. This is someone that not only excited about the things of God, but can get others excited about them as well. They inspire people. Others see their spiritual lives and see authenticity, and they are drawn to it. They come alongside people and offer encouragement. Are you a motivator? Then he says they're prophets, and that word literally means discernment or foresight. And these are people who have the gift of wisdom. This is someone who can pull truth from the past, and help others to learn from it. And then it's also someone who can has keen insight into how decisions today will affect our future. They can see the past and give wisdom. They can understand the future and give wisdom. This person comes alongside people and give direction. Do You have the gift of wisdom. Then he says they're evangelists. This means, the word literally means bringer of good news, a herald, somebody who announces good news. This is the gift of persuasion. Now, this doesn't mean that you and I can, somebody that has this gift can talk anybody into doing anything. But it does mean that you can help people see the good in things, even in spite of the bad. They connect with people where they are and help them to see different perspectives. They come alongside people and give hope. Evangelists don't wait for people to come to them to share good news. They go to the people where they are and share good news. You have the gift of persuasion to bring hope. Then he says they're shepherds. And this word literally means overseer or director. This word is often translated today pastor. And this is a gift of compassion. This is someone who sees people in their spiritual need and can't stand idly by. People open up to them easily and share things that they might not share with others because of the compassion they sense from them. These are people that come alongside and give people Security. Are you a shepherd? Do you bring compassion into people's lives? And finally, it says a teacher. And this means instructor or master. And this is somebody who has the gift of equipping. This is someone who, with knowledge and with a burning desire, to pass that knowledge on to others. They teach through words and action, and they come alongside people, and they give understanding. Where do you see yourself? As a follower of Christ, God has gifted each of us to lead in one of these areas. And this is how we dance in community together. The apostles are motivating people. The prophets are sharing wisdom. The evangelists are persuading people with truth and with hope. The shepherds are showing compassion and giving security to people. And the teachers are equipping us with understanding as we do this life together. It is this beautiful, harmonious dance of God's church working together. Find your role in this dance with our church. Find your role in the dance with whatever church you find yourself in. My question for today as we close is this. Do you want to dance today? Would you dance as you hear this beautiful music of salvation that we heard in Ephesians 1 through 3? Would you allow it to begin to move you in a manner worthy of your calling That we would begin to dance with one another in harmony. That we would look to God in purity and begin to dance deeply in that relationship with him. And that we would join a community and dance in that community together and reflect God's character and nature to this world. Will you pray with me?